I always believed with my kids that my story was to make them survivors, not victims. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Eyes Up, Heart Open. I'm Carla Tenike. I started my podcast journey as a way to connect with people from all walks of life, giving them space to share their stories with me, one person at a time. So let's just jump right in. Okay. We were we we were talking before we started recording, mm-hmm. and you were you were kind of sharing how you felt about you know, growing up and not necessarily being encouraged to just emote out to the world, right? Right. right. Because you just got to internalize your feelings and kind of keep it locked right. down and just soldier on and right. move forward. And right. and how, and I'm a believer of this also because this, I think this affected my mom's health is she kept everything in. Yeah. She didn't share. She didn't talk things through. Right. And when she was dying, she told me she felt like she was killing herself by internalizing everything mm-hmm. and not giving wings to to what was inside of her and how she felt. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, my parents uh, to this day are tremendously supportive and I admire them probably more than anyone in my life. Um, and yet I think their generation was, you know, come on, buck up, you know, let's not talk about how we feel any signs of emotion or weakness. And, and, you know, I, I certainly don't hold fault to them. I think that whole generation, you know, our generation was to, you know, just kind of push our feelings down and soldier on. And, um, and certainly for many years I did that, you know, it, it was an added pressure of the fact that I was the only girl and Mm -hmm. I had three brothers. So, you know, I had three brothers who we were all athletes and, you know, the motto was, you know, any sign of emotions, weakness. And, um, so I was often seen as the hyper emotional one or the (laughs) dramatic one or whatever. And, um, honestly for, for many, many years, I was the silver lining queen, you know, I was like, okay, whatever happens, people have it worse than me. And, you know, it's going to get better. And all of this one day will suddenly make some kind of sense. And now I well, see, tell me about that. What do you, yeah. what have you been through? Well, like, so, um, basically I would say that a big struggle for me initially was I was early in my twenties, newly married. Um, and, desperately trying to have a child. You know, I always knew I wanted to be a florist and I always knew I was, you know, driven to be a businesswoman and, and, um, and all of that. But the one thing that, you know, I'll probably take to my grave as a little bit of hole in my heart is that the most important thing in my whole life was to be a mom. And, um, So desperately tried to have children, eventually ended up in fertility treatments and heavy IVF treatments and all of that. And um, unfortunately found out at age 26 that I would never have children, um, that I had an abnormality to my eggs that just couldn't be corrected and was just devastated. I mean, absolutely devastated. And so I wrote this letter to the public, uh, to the paper, the local paper, and it was published. And, um, I was contacted by a young woman who was a, a sophomore in college where I'm from. And, you know, she wanted to meet me and was pregnant, unwed, sophomore in college, scared, didn't want to have a child at this point, didn't want to abort. 
Um, and we met her at a restaurant. I'll never forget her name. Ironically was Jennifer as well. And, uh, she, after meeting us, she said, you are meant to be the mother of my child. And so over the next seven months or so, proceeded to go to all the doctor's appointments and found out I was a little boy and saw the ultrasound and heard the heartbeat and um, just was over the moon. I thought, here's all the, here's all my prayers coming, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're all being answered. And this little boy, I named him Brady. He was beautiful in the ultrasounds and, um, and the, um, in that time of adopting, we, my ex-husband, who's a, a drummer, um, had made plans to move to Nashville where he was going to be an active uh, studio musician. And, um, we got a call, uh, within a month I was getting travel plans ready to go back home, uh, for the birth of the, of the child and was going to be in the delivery room. The whole nine yards had set up this gorgeous nursery and got a call from her basically stating that she wanted all of her college tuition paid for and an exorbitant amount of money, or she wasn't going to give me my son. And um, I, I just remember at that moment thinking, how in the world could you be the person who sells your child? You know, and I remember thinking, at the time, you know, you go through this emotion where you're like, I don't care if I have to like mortgage my house to the hill. I'm, I can't lose this baby. And then rationale takes over in terms of, I remember thinking, how could I look at my son at 16 and explain that I bought him and I just couldn't go down that road. Mm -hmm. And uh, my lawyer at the time said, you know, at this point we, this woman's a loose cannon. What if you give her this illegal money and she still changes her mind yeah. and then you can't even go after her for the money because you've paid it illegally and morally. I just couldn't do that. So um, I stepped away and um, never heard about what happened with this with my son. I mean, I still refer to him as my son because in my heart he was. Um, and again, due to now looking back an unhealthy marriage, uh, somebody who just really was completely out of touch emotionally, um, had to pack my nursery up all by myself. And, uh, I'm not sure it's been so many years since I haven't thought about this or talked about this, but I'm not sure how I made it through that time. Honestly, I, I, it's probably been the single most devastating thing in my life. I mean, worse than even being told I wouldn't have a child because he was real. You had him. He was real. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I moved on from that again, typical silver lining and, um, approached the foster care system in Nashville and went through, you know, the home studies and all of the processes that you go through for that. And, um, got a phone call that there was a six-year-old and seven-year-old brother and sister who had been in foster care for two years and, um, was told verbatim that, um, the kids just were in a very poor family who were neglecting them due to their circumstances and the kids were homeless on and off. And, um, would I consider them? And of course we did. And looking back now, it's just, it was such a whirlwind, um, 
try to imagine like you get this phone call and two weeks later, these kids who are six and seven are moving into your house. You have no beds, no toys, no furniture, no clothes, no nothing. I mean, they literally came with one outfit. And so it was a whirlwind and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, and I remember saying to uh, DCF down there, you know, what are the situ? What's really the situation? Oh, they just need a lot of love. They just need a lot of love. They were neglected. They need a lot of love. Um, so my kids moved in two weeks after I was told of them. Um, the adoption went through and how long did you wait before, um, Look, was it just they're moving in, you have to adopt, or were you fostering, or were no. you? No, I knew I knew enough about myself to know. I have ironically friends right now who are trying to talk me into fostering dogs, and I'll, I'd probably end up with like forty dogs. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, it's just a good fit. Yeah, it's not a good fit for me at all. Um, I knew I couldn't foster because I knew enough yeah. about the system to know that in many cases these children go back to these dysfunctional homes, right. and I thought. I would be that crazy you just want person who would yeah. like kidnap them, take them to Mexico. Cause I would absolutely never want them to go back into yeah. these horrible homes. Um, yeah. and I just wanted to be a mom. All yeah. that's all I wanted was to be a mom. And so, uh, we adopted them. Um, at first you go through a typical honeymoon phase where everything's rosy and, you know, I was sure. on top of the world. I thought, you know what? They immediately started calling me mom. And I was like, this is the best thing to ever happen. It makes losing Brady. Okay. It makes losing my fertility. Okay. And then about six months in, I would say I started noticing really odd behaviors. Um, I can't believe I'm talking about this because it's so heavy. Um, I started noticing things like defecating in corners. And I started noticing that my daughter was excessively masturbating at seven and mm-hmm. banging her head into the floor while she did it. And, um, and I remember I was driving them to summer camp and it was at this big, beautiful church in Nashville that was close by my shop. And, uh, my daughter at seven started disclosing very graphic sexual behavior and, and things that had happened to her. And I literally, it's like, almost like, have you ever had a situation happen in your life where you're like out of body? Like yes. it's a movie that's yes. reeling and you're like, yep. what is really going on? And I almost wrecked the car. I was so stunned. Like I was just like, what are you talking about? And I remember at the time dropping my son off at summer camp and I called my business and I said, listen, can't explain it. I know I never called out sick in my life, but I I need a break here. I need, I need the day to spend with my daughter. And I, I'm not sure what came over me, but I remember rather than her feeling, I didn't want her to feel shameful of whatever she had to tell me. And I remember saying, let's just go have a girl's day. We're going to have a girl's day today. We're going to get our fingernails painted. We're going to have lunch. We're going to hang out, whatever. And she was like, okay. She's like, but can we talk? And I said, absolutely, let's talk. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my gosh, I just adopted these children. No one has told me about this situation, but I've got to document this. Like, mm. I, because at this point, I didn't know, did they not know about this or, yeah. you know, what's going on? And I, I thought it was interesting that about three weeks leading up to Samantha disclosing this, um, she kept asking whether or not, like obsessively asking, well, will my birth parents be in heaven? Like she was terrified to see her birth parents in heaven. And I was, I thought that was kind of strange. I was like, well, 
you know, I don't know. I don't make those decisions. Yeah. So um, do you want them to be in heaven? Do you not want them to be in heaven? And um, so as Samantha was disclosing this, she kept saying, you know, do you think God knows? Do you think God knows what what happened to me? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. And I, I still believe somebody somewhere drove me to come up with this because this is not typically something I would have come up with on my own. Um, I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we write all this down in a notepad and we'll leave it open on your dresser and God will look down and he'll read it and then he'll know. Because she was mm. really like... That's kind of smart, actually. Yeah, and I don't know what like came over me. No offense, because you're like, I don't think this is a normal idea I'd have. But no, that's, that's yeah, I don't yeah. think that is. Yeah. Some, I mean, at the point, I think I was so shocked that I don't know how I had even a clear concept of what I should be doing, and so we did that, and then she disclosed it all, and it was like, it was like stuff you you just will never unhear. Do you know what I mean? I mean, for a child to be raped by both her parents from zero to four and tortured is nothing that was ever in my wheelhouse of understanding. And um, and so after it, you know, here I am like inside just crying for this child and and trying to figure out how in the world we're ever going to get through this because I had no experience with sexual abuse or any of that. And was she, were either kid in any kind of therapy or seeing any social workers or anything right. from well, the Well, as soon as I adopted didn't? them, three days later, I had them intaken with a, with a child psychologist because mostly at the time I thought, well, just to... Yeah, you know, stand blend top as of a it. family. Yeah, 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 just blend as a family. Yeah. I knew there would be struggles. I knew I wasn't completely naive. Okay, they were in foster care, so there's going to be some adjustments. Um, thank God I found this woman. I mean, this woman just about saved my life. I'll never forget her ever. Dr. Berryman in Nashville is like a lifesaver for so many of us that have gone this road. And um, so, to make a long story short. All of a sudden, I start getting all these disclosures uh, from the kids about, you know, black eyes and thrown downstairs. And, you know, my daughter who was left to care give for her infant brother while they went off all night and got drugged up and drunk in bars. I mean, it was just like a horror show. And through it all, you know, and this will kind of wrap it up once we go through the whole process of what really ended up being my story, uh, and their story. Um, I always believed with my kids that my story was to make them survivors, not victims. I had given to them and loved them and, and sought help for them. They would have that magic light bulb moment, you know, where, um, not that I needed a trophy or a gold star or anything, but that, they would know that they were loved. And um, so uh, after all of this, of course. Um, Do you think they ever thought that? Do you think they had a moment of feeling that ever? I don't think so. Um, really? Yeah, we were. So my children were diagnosed by Dr. Berryman, both with severe uh, RAD, which is reactive attachment disorder. And in an extreme case of it, um, my son, by the time we got done, was diagnosed with, I think, seven things, including being a sociopath, um, clinically, um, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, 
uh, OCD, uh, gender issues, a lot of those things. And, um, but and this, this was at what age was he diagnosed with that? Um, that all, the, the rad, thank you. The, the reactive attachment disorder, I think when you, when you look at, um, all of the issues with my children, the core issue. So for those who are listening, who don't know what reactive attachment disorder is and how it kind of, uh, infiltrates people's lives, reactive attachment disorder. So when a baby is born, the, the baby's natural bond happens with its mother. And then when that bond is secure, it usually moves on to the father role model. And when that's secure, it moves on to grandparents and aunts and uncles. And then from there, it snowballs into connections like you and I have as friends. Um, Because that bond was never made, my children do not have a genuine ability to ever have a genuine bond. So everything is surface level. So you know, I've had so many therapists say to me, you know, Jen, you have to look at yourself as a caregiver, not as a mom. You know, these children show affection when they stand to gain something. There's nothing genuine in their I love you. It's I love you, but it's because I want this or I'll behave because I the end result is this is what I want. And um, how, what, how old were they when, when you heard that? Um, I would say about, uh, a year into my adoption. So seven and eight. And did you at one at that point, were you like, what the hell? Like, yeah, do I, I mean, move hell forward? is kind of a minor That's, word. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, you know, the and F you're allowed word. to swear by the way. Oh, okay. What the fuck is what I wanted yeah, to say, but yeah. I'm like, so, you're Southern. So I didn't know. So yeah, at the time it was a definite, what the fuck? Like what in the world like, do you did want, I get into here? Right. You know? Because it's and, not in your nature to run like you're, you're like steadfast and you want to be a mom. And I remember when, you know, throughout this process, especially once my son got into puberty, it just went completely off the rails. I mean, he was so out of control. And I remember, you know, people in my family and really close friends who knew very few people knew what I was really dealing with. And, uh, they said, you, you got to put them back in foster care. Like these kids are going to damage your life. Like they're going to, your son is dangerous. He's threatening to kill you. You have to, you know, you've got to protect yourself. And I remember thinking if these kids don't have me, they have nobody. Like they have nobody. I can't do it. Like I can't walk away from it. I have to believe that everything that I'm doing someday is going to matter. I mean, it's what propelled me through 15 years of fighting for them, you know? Yeah. And, um, so we went through like reactive attachment, uh, disorder treatments to the point where, I mean, I know this is so foreign to so many of, of the people listening, but where we tried to create bonds to the point where I would hold my eight year old daughter in my lap, like a child and bottle feed her apple juice and gaze into her eyes to try to get into the depths of her soul and try to get her to connect. And, and it just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And um, my marriage ended up, my first marriage ended up imploding as a yeah. result. Um, he just physically was incapable of, of dealing with their needs and the turmoil that our life had become. And, and at the time, I remember being so angry and feeling so abandoned by that. And yet, looking back, I get it. Like. Yeah. 
I, I get, I, I mean, I actually get it. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And, um, you know, did it make it harder for me? Absolutely. Um, so I'm, you know, soldiered on single parent. I mean, I was in therapy three nights a week with these kids, you know, and through the whole course, my respite was my work. I mean, if I didn't have my work and the creative outlet that I had with that and the fact that my work was like the one element that I could somewhat control. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I do. Like, I mean, I think yeah. so many of us look at it that way. You know, I could control how many, you know, how I was with my clients and, and how many brides had great experiences, but my whole house was like a horror show. And, um, so I met this incredible man, um, Tom and he, at this point I had no blinders on. I mean, I knew what kind of situation I was in and, um, he, he walked in, he was gentle. He understood that he didn't understand how to parent them, but supported me in parenting them in whatever mechanism that I, that I needed to, um, we became very close, obviously make a long story short. He is now my current husband of 10 yeah. years. Um, Who I love. He's so great. He <laughs> is really the most amazing man for a man to come into a situation that is so horrific and marry somebody who had this kind of shit show going on. It's huge. Says huge character things about him. And, you know, from my, my parents, I, I don't know. They might almost love him more than me at this point. <laughs> I mean, they can't believe my dad says all the time. I could have never done what he did. I could have never stood by, you know, I mean, how many men could say that? How many yeah. men could come into that situation and, and hold a woman's hand through yeah. Things that just, you just can't even imagine you're dealing with. Um, so my son really, the most painful part is really around the time. So both my kids had intellectual disabilities. I mean, I remember at the time there was nothing I wouldn't do for my kids. I cashed out all my retirement plans, all my <laughs> stocks and bonds, my whole savings, put them through Sylvan Learning School, like tried everything. I mean, spent hours upon hours working with teachers, teaching teachers about reactive attachment disorder, coming up with plans for school, you know, constantly advocating, advocating, advocating. Um, and then my son hit puberty and uh, our world just sort of took a whole nother step, step into insanity. Um, he, at this point, um, I had, I had started to recognize that my son was really struggling with homosexuality, mm -hmm. um, which I was absolutely probably, I mean, for those who know me, I'm one of the least yeah. judgmental people about yeah. anything to do with that. And, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting down having conversations thinking, well, maybe all his rage is really wrapped up into that he really hasn't been able to own how he feels yeah, and, who he is and, yeah, yeah. and who he is. And I, so I, you know, had so many conversations with him, you know, let's talk about this. Like, are you struggling? You know, where are we at? No, 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 no. You know, and I was like, 
constantly send them the message, you know, I'm going to love you no matter what. It doesn't matter. I want you to be authentic. I want you to be happy. Like there's nothing wrong. If this is the path you're choosing, this is who God made you to be. You know, I mean, I sent him all those messages, encouraged him to talk to friends of mine who, you know, were gay and thinking, well, maybe he just needs to talk to somebody who can help him, who understands the struggle. Mm -hmm. But then I started to realize this really had zero to do with the sexuality and everything to do with the fact that he was sociopathic. And I've had seven therapists all over the country tell me, Jennifer, your son has no conscience. Oh, my God. Your son has no conscience and no empathy at all. And that's not something you can teach. Like, we missed the mark. That's all taught before six. Like, and, you know, there's the genetic factor of which I also have no control. I mean, their biological father is a monster and who knows the mom was too. And the mom was too in a different sort of way, but you know, you're equally just as evil, really. I mean, that's the word I use for them is evil. I don't know how you strip a child of, of what they stripped a child of and live with yourself. Like I, I just can't even, and for years, the therapist kept telling me, Because, you know, I was one of those people where everything has to make sense. Like, okay, if this happened, I want to know why. And I've started to learn to let go of that because let's face it, some of the stuff that happens to us in life, we just, there is no why. I will never understand how you can look at a zero to four year old baby and rape her. I don't get it. I'll never understand it. It's the most evil of the evil. And, um... So I had to let go, you know, of, of that. I used to drive myself crazy. How could someone do this? How could someone do this? How could someone do this? And I'll never get it. Yeah. I'll never get it. Um, so my son progressed into um, a pattern of my son would, my son was one of those kids where I don't know if you've ever met a kid like this, where they would look you in the eye and lie even in the face of having been caught with the evidence and still lie. Oh my god. And you know, you would drive yourself mad like look, the thing you stole is right here under your pillow. No one else put it there, right? You know, and you would go through this dialogue yeah. and it was so frightening. And so James would do things to sort of torture me. James at one point at 14 said my verbatim quote, my lot in life is to make you as miserable as possible. And wow. And I remember thinking, but I'm the only person who's ever given a shit about you. Like, how can that be your lot? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I'm the only person that's ever cared for you. And wow. then I started noticing he started hiding butcher knives under his bed. And I became extremely fearful. Um, at one point, he got tired of our dog barking and he put rubber bands around her mouth. So then I transitioned into, oh my God, I've got to watch my animals. Like I can't have him. And I knew enough to know for people who are cruel to animals. Yeah, that's it. You, nope. you Yeah, that's just categorically <laughs> nope. something yes. wrong. Yes. Something psychologically and morally and... and wrong in your soul but it's okay to be terrible to you that's the other thing that after hearing that sentence that that didn't frighten you oh, equally then the, but then seeing the tangible the knives and then but you're you're I, willing I to just state. no I, um, not that you were willing but like yeah. you were able to just say 
you know, I can't, I don't know. Again, I would, I think I just kept believing I'm in this shit show and I'm going to see it through. Like I'm not going to be somebody that fails these kids again. That, and I think part of it is, is we had reached a point where I was so embarrassed with the life I was leading in my house. And again, you know, it's like we talked about earlier before we went live, we were raised to believe that, um, you know, every decision we made as kids was a direct reflection of our parents. You know, I mean, I remember my dad saying, you've got to protect the Ford name and, you know, everything that you do will come back on me as a bad parent and you need to make the right decisions and all of that. And, and we knew that. And I think yeah. honestly, I wish more families were like that because we had a genuine feeling of we can't humiliate our family. Like we can't embarrass our parents. And um, so having lived that, you you go through that phase where you're like, you know what? I don't want people to think that I created this, that my my kid is, is hiding knives and I'm horrible. I must be a horrible parent. And at the time I sat on a board for a children's hospital. So I'm sitting there going, how can I, if I'm such a bad parent, how could I be doing all this amazing work for these children and these families of this incredible hospital? And then in secret, I'm leading like this insanity in my own house. Mm. And it's a train I want to get off, but I can't get off because I signed on the dotted line to adopt these kids. Mm. And so the knives really freaked me out. And then James uh, started stealing. Well, the, was that also, was that before he rubber banded the dog's mouth shut? Because uh, I kind of interrupted you a little yeah, bit. The rubber, the rubber band thing was, I think, the first thing I knew we're heading into dangerous territory here. Um, and and then certain things started happening, like things would go missing, and I would ask him where they were. Oh, I don't know. And then I would catch him with things. Oh, I don't know how that got there. I didn't put that there. I didn't take it. What are you talking about? And then I started noticing, then it progressed. It was like this progression. It was like he had to push the envelope harder and harder and harder. And I started seeing thousands of dollars of my jewelry gone. And I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And what I'm about to say is probably if anyone could try to imagine this, it's hard for me to even say this and even realize that I live like this for basically four years. We had to put deadbolts on the interior doors of our rooms in our house. And Tom and I had to walk around with a set of keys to get in and out of the doors of our house because we couldn't let James in the garage because he'd steal Tom's tools and hawk them and do whatever. I couldn't let him in my room because he was threatening at that point to kill me. And so I had to padlock myself in at night so he didn't stab me in the middle of the night, which is what he repeatedly threatened to do. I had to lock any room other than like the kitchen, the bathroom and his room. Um, at one point it got so bad that we actually had to install little alarms on the outside of the kids' doors because for a moment I thought, oh my God, what if he stabs my daughter in the middle yeah. of the night? And so I, there was this blood curdling alarm that if they came out of their rooms, I would wake up and hear it instantly. But it got so bad with his threatening to kill me and, you know, don't ever turn your back on me because I'll stab you right in the back and I hate you and all kinds of profanities and that I had to go to sleep clinic. I went eight months sleeping two, two hours a night, all the while trying to run a business because I was terrified of my kid. And, um, 
And uh, I think the two kind of last nails in the coffin with me were one day I was getting ready for work and I used to pack my kids lunches every day. Um, and they would take their lunches. I mean, I even was kind of that goofball that like wrote little messages on their lunch bags and whatever the, you know, brown paper. And, uh, all of a sudden I hear a knock at my door and I'm getting ready for work. The kids have since gone on the bus to school and there's a gentleman named David Friend, who actually, ironically, has be, had become, after all this incident, a very big ally of mine. And he said, you know, Jen, we, there's been an allegation at school that you're not feeding your children. And I remember, like, literally grabbing the wall, going, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm from Iowa. I don't know if you've ever met Midwest people. <laughs> you feed people. Like, not only do we feed people, but like, we have enough pantry to like survive a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. I mean, cause it's cold in Iowa. So we stock stuff. We can, we do all this. So I said to him, before we go any further in this discussion, I want you to come with me and I want to show you my house. So I opened up the pantry, packed a food, opened up the fridge, packed a food. I said, come downstairs to our finished basement. Another fridge, tons of food, upright freezer full of food. I said, I pack my kids lunch every day. What are you talking about? Where is this coming from? Do you have the wrong house? But I remember thinking to myself, how could somebody, and I guess this is the the point I'm trying to make, when you're having to defend your character and you don't even know what you're having to defend it against. Yeah. It's so painful because you're like, how could anyone think that I would ever be the kind of person that wouldn't feed children? I feed the neighborhood kids. Like, what are you talking about? So I went into it. So David Friend sat down and he's like, I told him the whole backstory. And he's like, you got to start documenting this. You have to go into protection mode. Like you need to put cameras up in the house. You need, and I'm sitting there going, wait a second. How did I get to the place where I'm having to hide nanny cams in my house to protect my house and protect myself? Like, what are we talking about here? So I went into his room. I was like, I don't know where he's putting his lunches. Is he hiding them? Is he throwing them away? What? I found, you remember in school, middle school, when you used to do the science experiments with like the bread to see how long it would take to mold bread? Do you remember yeah, doing that? I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, my son had a science experiment of lunches in his closet buried underneath all of his dirty clothes. So there were like 13 lunches there. So I was so enraged at the time. It was like the last straw with me. I was like, I can, I'm not going to have people think that I'm not feeding my kids. So I said, will you come to the school with me? And he said, absolutely. Let's go grab the lunches. I remember walking into the school, didn't even pay the receptionist any mind. I'm normally not rude. I went right to the principal's office and, you know, she was like, oh, you got to slow down. I said, no, 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 I'm not slowing down. Nothing. I pull all these lunches out, stack them on the desk. It was, this is so bizarre. I said, get my son in here now. And, you know, typical principal. Oh, well, let's talk. No, no, no. no. We're not talking until my son is sitting in this office. I said, by the way, this is the DCF worker that you called. And James walks in. I'll never forget this. Glares at me like he wanted to just strangle me. Looks at the lunches. And the principal says, James, would you like to explain what all these lunches are? Never seen those before in my life. Wow. 
the principal said, they have your name on them. Your mom found them in the bottom of your closet. Where did these lunches come from? Never seen them before. The hmm. DCF worker says to him, do you even realize the trouble you are in for making false allegations? Do you get that? Do you understand how serious this is? My son smirks at him, starts laughing and says, I just wanted to see what would happen to my mom. Yeah. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Really? What do you do with that? I wanted to see what would happen to my mom. Hmm. It's hard to explain to people what that felt like. And then about six months later, he had turned 17 and a half. And um, so he stayed yeah. after that? You yep. I tried him? to have him removed. I tried to have him committed. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean it. Like yeah. you still kept him. But no. Like you, yeah. Like I. Yeah. Yeah. Can't he would run away from home. The cops would pick him back up. And at that point, I was like, he was 17. I was like, I can't. This kid can't just, just keep coming uh, home. Just keep him. I don't yeah. even care at this point. I yeah. just don't care. I'm done. And the police kept saying, until he's legally 18, you have to let him come back. And I'm like, what? I mean, I had journals that I had found of him threatening to kill me. No one would let me commit him. I said, he's threatening to kill me. I swear to God. I swear to God. It's written proof in his own handwriting. Oh, well, we talked to him. He said he didn't really mean it. Are you kidding? I swear to God. This is in the state of Connecticut. State of Connecticut. Oh, this is comforting. Yeah, state of Connecticut. And I remember thinking... Everyone that I've reached out to to help in this situation has abandoned me, has abandoned me. This kid is the same kid who had my husband arrested for false allegations of physical violence. And then they, of course, dropped the charges, but it didn't change the fact that my husband got handcuffed and pulled out of my house. Yeah. And then you know what he said about that? Well, you know, I was just mad. I was just mad. I was mad. So I had my stepfather arrested for false allegations. So I'm trying to figure out still to this day how the state of Connecticut knows that he made two major false allegations and continued to force me to have to deal with this. So at 17 and a half. And threatening to kill you. Threatening and in his own handwriting. And you're living with your doors locked. with Like a prisoner in my own house. I was a prisoner in my own house. Letting him stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So everything sort of came to a head at 17 and a half March, right before he turned 18 in June. And I was at work and some, my daughter called me and said, James is ripping up everything in my room. So I punched him in the arm. Now my daughter was like 95 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. Right. And I mean, didn't you fight with your brother? I mean, my brothers and I used to like yeah. have full on brawls, yeah. you know, and I'm like, so James, because Samantha was legally 18, even though she had an IQ of 54, James called the police on her for assault on his own sister, his own biological sister. Samantha calls me. James called the police on me because I punched him for destroying my room. So I drop everything as per usual. My poor staff, what they went through in all these years. God bless them. I love them. I can't imagine what they even endured having my back. But 
I came flying home just as the police show up. And I said, you cannot take my daughter, who's mentally handicapped, to jail. You can't do it. She's been so severely traumatized in her life. You can't do this to this child. She doesn't understand. She punched her brother. But legally in the state of Connecticut, because she was of age and he was a minor, they charged her with assault. So they didn't arrest her. Which is still bullshit, because the cops could have just said... You know Come what? Come on. They're brother like, and sister. Give yeah. me a break. Give me He's a break. tearing up her room. Give Whatever. Yeah. So they charge her. I'm at home. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I remember telling the police, you don't understand what's going on in this household. My son is dangerous. He's threatened to kill me. You know, this is so not what you think it is. You know, where's the help for us? Like, you know. You're you guys tar- are the victims. Yeah. Not him. Yeah. And um, so I knew we had to go to court the next day. Eight o'clock in the morning to have my 50, you know, IQ 54 daughter go before a judge for assault charges. And I'm sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me right now. This is not really happening. And about, I told James to go to his room, uh, just devastated. And I went in two hours later and he had a backpack packed. And I was always so careful to always make sure James was in front of me. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah. To make sure that I had eyes on him at all times um, so that I could have a defensive position. Um, after all, he told me, if you ever turn your back on me, you're getting stabbed in the back. So I went into his room and I think I was so upset about my daughter that I went to open his backpack to see what was in there. And my back was to him. Mm. he jumped off of his bed on top of my back with both feet landed on my back, threw me to the ground, drug me by the arm down the hall. Now I'm not a little girl. I was like, just I'm 5'11". Say, yeah, she's tall. I'm, I'm 5'11". <laughs> and my son was 5'8", 5'9". So it goes to show how rage can really work yeah. in an unstable mind. Drug, tore a bunch of ligaments, you know, up my side, the whole time, the C-U-N-T word, I and hate you, I'm going to kill you. And is then decides to try to drag me back to his bed. And I knew right away what was there. I knew this kid had gotten his hands on knives again, somehow, some way. Even though I had locked them all up, you know, it ain't hard for a kid to get a knife at a friend's house right. or whatever. So he's dragging me back to his bed. I'm going to and kill you. I'm going to and kill you. This is a la- This is it. You're done. And I knew I can't let him get me to this bed. And my, here's my daughter, like, watching all of this. My husband's upstairs watching TV, can't hear any of this going on because of the layout of our house. And I remember grabbing a hold of the doorway and saying, oh, my God, if I let go of this doorway, he's going to stab me. And, and I said, Samantha, get my phone because my phone had gone flying. Get my phone, call 911 now. Call 911 now. And... She got a hold of the police. She said, you need to come back here. Gave the address. She was like, you got to get back here. My brother's trying to kill my mom. And James heard the police and took off out the front door. Well, our bedroom is on the front part of the house. And Tom heard the door slam, comes running downstairs. I'm on the phone now laying on the floor talking to the police. And this is two hours, keep in mind, after he just called the police on my daughter. 
So this is the same police coming back to the house, the same exact officers. And I remember crying. I was like, I told you, I tried to tell you this was happening. You didn't believe me. How could you sit? You just let this happen. And I know that's maybe not fair to put off on them, but they could have stopped it. They could have stopped that. And of course, my husband, Mr. Italian, goes flying out the door. He's like, I've had it. You know, I have had it. That is the only saving grace in my house is that my husband's 6'4", and he's Italian, and my son knew not to do or say things in front of him. You know, because he's just ominous. He's a big guy. You've met him. You know, sweet as can be, but he's he's a big boy. And I remember yelling at Tom as the police were pulling up, please stop. Don't go after him. You'll hurt him, and you'll be in jail. Don't go. Just let him go. Let him go. So I went to the emergency room and had to go through all this exam. And, you know, I mean, talk about shocking. I I still look at that like it didn't happen in a way. It was like another bad movie. I remember sitting there and these nurses coming in. And I think at first all I could get out was that I, I was assaulted. And, you know, I think naturally their first reaction was, oh, my God, did her husband or boyfriend beat her up? And then I just started crying like all the years of like heartbreak and fear and anxiety and all that just came to a head. And I said, it was my son. My adopted son just tried to kill me. He said he would try to kill me and he, he almost did. He meant it. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember at the time, you know, I mean, I'm not somebody who's ever had to hire lawyers or anything. And I remember thinking, Oh my God. Okay. So he, they finally picked him up, arrested him I knew he was going, so if you can picture this, so the next day I had to sit in a courtroom for six hours waiting for my daughter's case to be called in front of all these adult criminals because legally she's 18. So here's all this guy for prostitution, drug runners, and I'm sitting there going, I have a child who doesn't even understand what's going on and she's even in a courtroom listening to all these cases because it's open court, I guess. And then my son's case was being heard at the very end in close quarters because legally he was still a minor. And I remember standing at the table, you know, not podium table. And there's this older gentleman who was a judge. It was in in Meriden court. And they brought my son in in shackles. And I remember right before they brought him in, the public defender, and I realized Common sense tells me this is their job. You know, I I try not to take it personal, but it's awful hard when you're in that situation. And um, I remember the prosecuting attorney, I mean, the defense attorney, is that what they're called? Public defenders? Yeah. Saying, well, this is a family matter. He should go home and they should go to counseling and work it out. (laughs) Now, keep in mind, we've sat in counseling for three three hours each week, three days a week for... mm, 12 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're past the counseling and sticker positive sticker charts and you name it. I've tried it. And I remember just sitting there for the first time and just sobbing. And I told my story to the judge and I said, your honor, I'm telling you now, if he comes back to this house, he's going to kill me. And you are going to watch my son walk into this courtroom and he will have no sign of emotion or regret at all. 
And when that happens, I want you to believe everything I've told you. So they brought my son in in shackle, full shackles. I mean, wouldn't yep. you think most 17 year olds? I mean, God, if I had to show up in court in shackles, I'd be like hysterical. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't most 17 year olds? Yeah. yeah. He walked in, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Have you ever seen footage of like serial killers yeah. walk in? Yeah. Nothing. No emotion, no ugliness, no good, bad, or other. The judge says to him, do you know why you're here? He said, yup. Just like that. Yup. Now, this is a kid I taught to open doors for people, get up when an older person comes in in a waiting room of a restaurant and give them your seat. And that's how he's talking to the judge. So the judge said, I almost flipped out to the public defender. If you think, I'll never forget this, man. If you think that I am going home this weekend to be with my family and I am going to put this kid back in this woman's house for him to kill her, it is not happening. He said, I am keeping him on $50,000 bond. And the only person who can bail him out is this woman right here, his mother. Ma'am, do you want to bail your son out of jail? And I said, no, Your Honor, I don't. No, Your Honor, I don't. So the next day, kind of to wrap all this up. So the next day, a very dear friend of mine, who's also a client of mine, and is uh, his name is Attorney John Williams. The man saved my life. I'm convinced of it. Um he is the notorious attorney who, when he was first starting out in New Haven, represented the Black Panthers in that big mm. railroad of them supposedly killing someone. So he's like this huge civil rights attorney, murder attorney. You know, I mean, like he's like hardcore. Yeah. And I remember I was so desperate. I was like, I just need some advice on what to do. I don't know what my rights are. I don't know what I should do here. And I went and I, I called him and I said, John, I just need some advice. I know there's no way I can afford you. I think his retainer is like $10,000. And I'm like, I just don't know what to do. So I remember going to his office. He's this gentle, wonderful, older gentleman. And he listened to my whole story. I mean, I just unloaded. I, w- I had kept it in so long. I was like, this is everything that's been going on. Like, I-, I just, I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. I can never pay you, blah, blah, blah. Can you just send me to somebody who I can afford? And I'll never forget, he sat across the table and he said, you've made one mistake in this whole situation. And I said, what's that? Because <laughs> at the time, you know, as the parent, you're thinking, yeah, I, I must have made a ton of them because <laughs> my kid is psychotic. And... He said, you didn't come to me four years ago. Mm-hmm. And this kind man said, you are done going to court. Your son will never be in your care again. I'm going to court for you and I'm not charging you one penny. And talk about powerful angels at work. I mean, this man's like my angel. And, you know, it was kind of comical, the little bit of silver lining or funniness to it. He boasted it. So he went to court the next hearing and was like, you're done. Bring all his stuff to my office. The foster care system can pick it up. You're done. You're done. We're putting a restraining order on him. You're done. My son is so psychotic that he wrote me from jail a note and I wish I had never read it. And it started out by saying verbatim, I'm not sure why you think I attacked you. That never happened. You must be delirious. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so my son was, I mean, forcibly removed from my house uh, against his will. Um, We'll never be able to pay John Williams back as long as I live, you know, and he always gets embarrassed when I talk about it. But the comedy in it is that he went to court in my place and he said, you know how funny it was for them to watch John Williams walk into this courtroom on this kind of a matter, you know, here they're like, holy cow, here's John Williams. So we kind of chuckled about it. You know, (laughs) I I think he got a charge out of it. um, If there's any charge to be had. Um, And the only time I hear from my son now, I've had to change my cell phone number uh, numerous times, uh, he'll blow up my business phone twice a year around his birthday or Christmas to get money. And it's always the same story. Oh, I've changed. I want to have a relationship. And then the minute I say, you know, James, it's better that we just are not in each other's lives. You've done a lot of damage and you can't undo that. I wish you well. It's right back to the you're an F and B and I hate you. And someday I will succeed and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think the hardest part, and I've talked with my best friend Lizzie about this extensively is to sort of wrap this up because I'm long winded. So I I apologize for that is that my greatest want in my life was to be a mom. And sometimes I'm left wondering if I wouldn't have been better off having never had any experience with it, rather than such a troubling experience with it. And yet, I go to sleep at night knowing that I absolutely did everything I could do to help these kids. And even if they never get it, which I hope they do someday, but even if they don't, I did everything in my power and more to help them. Yeah. And I can feel good about that. You should. I mean... I don't, I mean, you can't undo what's done. And, and I think that, I think you needed to know how, how deep you would dig mm-hmm. for your kids. Yeah. And you went farther than so many people. Like yeah. each thing that you told me, I'm like, that's a threshold. That's got to be a nope. And then you went past that and yeah. past that and past, and even just saying, you know, he he calls you and asks for money and then still threatens to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, so you're still, you have to be on some level still essentially living in fear. Yeah, I do. Too, you know, like I do. Mm-hmm. that. I don't want him to know that, but I certainly do. Yeah. I mean, that's always present. Um, the minute he moved out, I got a super high tech security system. Um, but he knows where I live. He knows where I work. You know, he knows where my business is. He knows yeah. my patterns. Um and to make matters worse, I'm told through Grapevine that he's severely abusing drugs now. And you know how irrational people, I mean, you've already got a, a sociopath who now is under the influence of crack and all kinds of stuff. God only knows what the potential is. And then come to find out too, two years ago, I mean, I just feel like the system has just failed on so many levels. Two years ago, he was breaking into people's houses and squatting in their basements while they were upstairs living and got caught. And he had four felony charges against him. And I wrote to the prosecuting attorney because at this point, he's an adult now. And I'm like, you don't understand the mental problems that this person has. Like he needs to be either 
incarcerated or like committed. Like this kid is going to do great harm in his life. And do you know what they did? Uh, Even after my letter knocked it down to two misdemeanors and he's no serve, no jail time. I, as you're, the more involved you are with the story, the more you tell me, the more fearful I am for other people. Absolutely. It's terrifying to me. It's 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 more scary to me of what he potentially could do to others than me. All of it. I'm scared for you. I'm scared for anybody he encounters Mm -hmm. to have no conscience and be such a sociopath and so calculating, manipulative. And and that was the other thing. Like when you're dealing with children like this, in particular him, they are master manipulators. Like James figured out how to play the poor, sad little orphan boy at school and how to torture me at home. So that if I tried to talk to the teachers about this, they saw me as this irrational, crazy person. Right. Oh, well, we don't see this at all. He's so sweet and so sad and helps other kids. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. No, I... So that was the game. You know, that was his game. It's terrifying, actually, because I mean, I mean, I'm I'm not going to be one bit surprised when we hear he's on, killed on people. The TV. Yeah, yeah, I'm he's not, that guy that's yeah, going to do that. He is. He he absolutely. It's is. terrifying. It's terrifying to me. I said to my husband, he has a different last name than me, and I'm so grateful to that because the, I I think the thing I struggle with now is I have warned the courts. I have warned DCF. I've warned people about the potential harm that this kid will do in his lifetime. And and I think it's a ticking time bomb. And what am I going to say if this kid murders somebody or does some crazy house invasion or whatever, which he already has. Yeah. I mean, he has, he just hasn't hurt anyone yet. Yeah. Yeah. Being the operative word. Um, but, but you think about things like the Cheshire home invasion. That's I mean, exactly, that's exactly right? where I was going. Yeah. That's exactly and where I was like, going. And it's like, what am I going to say then? I warned you. I tried to tell you, I begged you to help this kid. I begged you to help us. And you turned your back over and over and over and over again. Like, how is that possible? How is <sighs> that possible? You know, and again, you come back to, this is the first time I've ever shared this story because you're such deep shame. It's like, oh my God, what are people going to think of me? It's not in the, in the I, no, I know I, that in my head, but in can I tell heart, you? it's that dialogue of children are a reflection of their parents. That's the struggle. That's the struggle in it. Yeah. You know, that's the heartache in it is. And I remember saying to someone who, you know, kind of didn't get it. I said, I didn't create this shit show. No, I didn't do this. No. Like I inherited this. No. And I stuck it out and I tried desperately to help and make a difference and change the destination of where they were going to go. And it was for nothing. And I mean, it it was for you. It was for you. Maybe he, he maybe didn't benefit. He could have been worse sooner. Maybe we don't know. I mean, we don't, it was for you. We don't know. I mean, the thing that I'm, you know, my heart is breaking for you, like just as a human being, but like, It's so hard. And yet, you know, the amazing thing is, is I remember one of my brothers um, who I'm closest to in age saying to me just recently, because he's still having children, which, hey, bring on the nieces and nephews, boy, these kids are the love of my life. Thank God for them. But 
I remember him saying, you have so much love to give. Are you sure you shouldn't consider adopting? And it that's a struggle for me when people come to me because they know I've adopted. And I think their natural story is, oh, she's going to have this wonderful experience to talk about. Mm. And boy, I have, a, I have a tough time because that's not been my life. No. That's not been my experience. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I feel like I owe it to people who are going down that road to warn them, hey, keep eyes wide open here. Get all the information. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But because. And, and so, so two of the things I actually couldn't even like articulate because I was so moved by what you're telling me is that, you know, and I've known you for, I was actually trying to do the math, which I'm really sucky at for how long we've known each other. It's yeah. been a long time. Eight or 10 years. And yeah. so I'm sitting here going, fuck, this has been going on. Like. I mean, when I would come to your birthday yeah, parties. Yeah. I couldn't tell anyone. I felt like I couldn't tell anyone. Like the only people who knew what was going on was my husband and my parents. Like I couldn't even like Like you were taking care of me. You were bringing me food. You were. But that's just who I am though. I'm a much better caregiver and taking care of other people than I have been historically with myself. And I think the work I finally, so after all the debacle with James, as you know, I got breast cancer at 41, um, had a double mastectomy and, you know, I had been through so much at that point. I was kind of like, whatever, you know, wear that (laughs) pink ribbon proudly. But again, it went into a pattern. Yeah, you know what I mean? I have the pretty cancer, someone told me. And I'm like, well, what the hell are you talking about? Pretty cancer? There's no pretty cancer. So yeah. at 41, you know, double mastectomy. Yeah. You know, if we hadn't caught it, you would have been dead within six months. So, you know, that's reality too. But again, went into my typical pattern of pushing my feelings down. Even the way you just said all that. Mm-hmm. Was like, But that's so cavalier because listen to all that you've been through. Yeah. Like, yeah. shit, you didn't have a charger full of food. You had a fucking football field size plate yeah. full of food. Like, yeah. you had so much shit on your plate. Yeah. Like, to then have that thrown at you. But I think, like, I think, ironically, the only way I was able to get through it is to help other people. I to know that. that I had enough love you that do. I could... That I could look outside of my own situation and say, you know what? This person needs my help and it can matter. You know, and I think one of the things that people make the mistake on, you know, is I I watch so much of this go on in the world. Um, I think when you give yourself to another person or you do something for someone else or you give back or you do all of that, you have to do it from a pure place. Mm -hmm. And the most powerful healing that a person can go through is to give to another person and stand to gain nothing in return. Yes. I think too many people give because they think it will make them look a certain way or whatever. And so much of my giving back, I do so behind the scenes and I really don't want any gold stars. You know, it's just because I have a genuine something in me deep rooted that says, you know what, I'm going to make a difference. I want my legacy. You know, people ask me, you know, all the time, oh, you know, are you going to be known as this great businesswoman or blah, blah, blah. Forget all that. That's yeah. all great. And yeah. I'm grateful for it. And I'm appreciative <laughs> for it. But man, when you guys are sitting at my funeral one day, and I hope it's a while from now, I hope everybody there just remembers me kind. Yeah. That's it. That's it for me. Like, I don't care if I'm keeping up with the Joneses and I don't care about awards and I don't care about all that. Like, did I make a difference? Like, did I matter? Was I authentic in my relationships with people? And did I matter? That's it. 
And did they know that they mattered to me? But I ended up finally on my husband's advice that the man is just a savior. I mean, I remember days through my cancer battle, he would pick me up off the floor in the shower and tell me everything's going to be good. Everything's we're going to get through this, Jen. We've been through worse. And he convinced me to seek therapy for the first time for me. And now, the, so, so that's one of the things I was going to ask you is all those three days a week. All about the kids. Yeah. All about the kids. Nothing for you. Sticker charts, positive reinforcement. How are the kids feeling? You know, it didn't matter how I felt. It was all trying to help them. And I think uh, I went to a woman. I'll never forget. We had a, and this is really heavy for me to share because this is just not in my normal wheelhouse. I remember after my mastectomy, after my reconstruction surgeries, then I had to have my reconstruction redone because it failed. So it was just like eight surgeries in two and a half years. And I remember at one point, I think Tom sensed I was really struggling. Like the Brady stuff was starting to creep back up. The baby boy, my children were still being very difficult, even though they weren't living with me. And, um, I took off from the house at two in the morning, got my car. And I don't remember where I was going or what I was thinking, but I just drove. And I remember no music. Like I I didn't, it wasn't one of those, have you ever had that? Well, I just need to decompress. I was in a completely different space. Like honestly, all of the things that had happened had just started playing in my mind over and over. And I started feeling myself sink and sink and sink and think, you know what? It doesn't really matter that I'm here because everything that's happened, I wasn't able to save it. I was, I didn't make a difference. You know, I didn't, I couldn't save these kids. And I remember I just drove and drove. I ended up somewhere almost in Pennsylvania. Wow. And I remember being in such a catatonic like state that I couldn't hear my phone ringing. Of course, my husband's like blowing up the phone like, oh, my God, where is she? And he knew I had started really struggling with all of this. So all of this had happened and I had gotten to this place where I took off in my car. And I just remember going, you know what? Does it really matter? Does it really matter that I'm here? How relevant am I? And um, failed at being a parent, failed. You know, you just go through that dialogue sometimes. And my husband said to me, you have to get in therapy. You have to go see someone and talk about this. You have locked this shit down for so many years that you just are filled. You have no more room to push it down. Mm -hmm. And I went to this amazing therapist. And for the first time in, let's see, I was 26 when I was supposed to adopt Brady. And at this point, I was 43, 44 had never spoken about Brady to anyone, not my parents, anyone. It was a subject that was closed. And what she was able to help me process really, I think, prepped me for sitting down with you today and sharing my story and saying, you know what? It's okay to talk about this. Like it's freeing to talk about this and to release it and maybe someday help somebody else in this situation, you know, or... Or give somebody hope that, you know what, some bad shit can happen to you, but you you can survive it. Like, you yeah. can go on and, and you know, Carla, don't you find that, like, no matter what happens to you, like, I, I remember, you know, having a conversation with my parents. And like I said, I adore my parents. And 
And I remember saying to him, but don't you get it by me being able to communicate this and being able to talk about this and really delve into it actually makes me the strongest of everyone because it's hard. It, it, it's easier to shove it down than yeah. to face it, it right? Mm-hmm. It's much tougher yeah. to own it and, and face it and move through it and and all of that and and uh, yeah, you know. And and I look back on it and I now have reached a place where you know I still get really angry when I see people having all these children that you know aren't taking care of them. I mean, it just fires me up. I get so pissed off. I'm like. You know, because you're raised with a faith and you're sitting there going, well, if God is the reason babies are born, like how in the world do you explain this craziness where all these people can have all these children that don't want them and don't take care of them and abuse them. And then people like me and other women, like my friend Lizzie, who have all the potential in the world to love and nurture and teach a child and raise a, a tremendous human being. And for whatever reason, we can't have it. So I don't know that that anger will ever disappear. But I would say that I've gotten to a point where I'm so joyful when I hear people, my friends, my family are pregnant. Like I'm yeah. joyful. I'm so happy for them. Um, I'm so happy for the children that are coming to them, that they're coming into this world. Let's face it. This world's a crazy mess sometimes. Yeah. But I know they have all the opportunities available to them to be a loving, productive, kind human being. Um, yeah. But I don't know that I'll ever feel whole because I'm not a mom. I'll never be a mom. There didn't seem to be any real great way to end this conversation I had with Jennifer that day, if I can even call it a conversation. I have never been as quiet during an interview as I was with her. She literally stunned me into silence with her story for many reasons, the obvious one being the trauma of what she went through, and as her friend, me having literally no idea. Which brings me to a part that I cut out for time's sake, but feel the need to just squeeze this in, as I sit here, a puddle of emotion while editing. You just never know what people are navigating through each day. They could be struggling with wanting to be a mother, but were declared incapable, or have an abusive sociopath for a son who tried to kill them. They could be struggling with breast cancer and had to have their breasts removed. They could be recently diagnosed with thyroid cancer after already having fought their cancer battle before. And this... This is all just what Jennifer goes through. I try to keep this thought top of mind so that I don't lose my mind when someone cuts me off in traffic or goes in the 12 items or less lane with 15 items and I lose my shit, which I don't really, but I know many people who would. I try to maintain a compassionate and aware heart to show people grace when maybe it seems hard to. In the end lies the whole reason why I started this podcast to begin with, is that we are not alone in life, but are connected through our stories of struggle grief, loss, and gratefulness. We are survivors. Thank you for joining me for episode six of Eyes Up, Heart Open. As always, if you or anyone you know has a story they would like to share with us, reach out and shoot me a message via our site, eyesupheartopen.com. Opening music provided by my son Jackson and my dad, Carlos Hernandez Chavez, while jamming on Thanksgiving. Background banter, courtesy of my loud sisters and brothers. The closing music is provided by the talented Noah Behrman from the song Since the Blues Walked In, off of his album titled Turtle Steps. <laughs>